Well, if you would, take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is where we are going to be this morning, and our text and our ambition is Acts 9, 1 through 22. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 22. Quite a popular passage among many Christians. We will attempt to, by God's grace, unpack it bit by bit together this morning Give you a moment to arrive there, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. When you get there, because this is the Word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, if you are able, would you please stand as you stand ready to hear from the God who still speaks in His Word and to us this morning in Acts 9, verses 1 through 22. Luke wrote, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, these words, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise And enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So... Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. 
For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength." And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever, church family. You may be seated. What a story. What a story. Well, the history of the church is filled with stories of Christ converting men and women out of a life of rebellion against God into a life of submission and faith and obedience to God. We mentioned last Lord's Day that these kinds of stories, that is conversion stories, they carry a wealth of variety. There are distinctive elements in each one of them, and yet there is tremendous similarity and unity in these conversion stories. After all, the story really simply is this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It is the story of a sinner dead in sin, rescued by the life-giving grace of God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Well, one such conversion story took place in the year 386, got to tell you about this one, and it will lead us into another conversion story, the one we just read about a moment ago. Augustine was raised by a praying and devout Christian mother named Monica. He was also raised by a pagan father who eventually became a Christian on his deathbed. But despite his mother's faithful influence as a boy and eventually a young man, Augustine treasured love more than he treasured the source of love. He treasured pleasure more than he treasured the source of pleasure and the chief object of pleasure. Augustine's life was characterized by rebellion and an acute sense of his own sin led to an experience he had in a garden. You might have read about this experience. If you've ever read his work, Confessions, you've read this experience in book eight. I would encourage you, by the way, to pick up a copy of Confessions. I was actually corrected by Pastor Tim one time. I said, look, Confessions is a very accessible book. <laughs> and uh, I think Pastor Tim, I don't know that you'd read it before, and, and uh, Pastor Tim has an acute sense of what it means to be a pastor. He came to me sometime thereafter and said to me, I don't know what you're talking about as far as accessibility of this book. And I said, well, it is accessible as it relates to other books written by Augustine. How's that? Um, So if you ever want to pick up a book by Augustine, Confessions is a great book to work through, but perhaps buckle up and prepare yourself as you work through this tremendous book that, by the way, is really just a prayer. The whole book is a prayer. He tells this story in that book, Confessions, and he tells the story in book eight of this experience that he had in a garden that sat adjacent to his residence where he lived with a friend. And by this point in his life, Augustine had come to see the futility of indulging in desires of the flesh. For example, he had a long-standing relationship with a woman who was not his wife. Even had a son, Adiodatus, with this 
woman. We don't name our sons these kinds of names anymore, Adiodatus, but that was the name of Augustine's son. With this unnamed woman, by the way, we don't know her name. And Augustine even says to us, he loved her immensely, but not well. And he says, time and time again, I was in love with love. And it really was love all along that was intended to draw me closer to the source of love, God himself. The one really who absolutely is beauty and love. And during this time, Augustine talks about being distraught with his own refusal to come to Jesus. He'd been taught about Christ for now 32 years. He was 32 years old when this is taking place. And so he'd been taught about Christ from Monica and from others. And he had listened to the preaching of a famous preacher named Ambrose in Milan. As Ambrose wonderfully impacted the Word of God, in particular the Old Testament, showing Augustine things he had never seen before. But Augustine recognized that he was consistently opposed to God. And uh, there is this point in Confessions where he describes his experience with Christ in a prayer that he offered to God. Here are the words, I flung myself down somehow under a fig tree. This is in the garden. And gave free rein to the tears that burst from my eyes like rivers as an acceptable sacrifice to you. Many things I had to say to you, talking to God. And the gist of them, though not the precise words, was, Oh Lord, how long? How long will you be angry forever? Do not remember our age-old sins. For by these I was conscious of being held prisoner. I uttered cries of misery. Why must I go on saying tomorrow? Tomorrow. In other words, tomorrow I'll change. Tomorrow I'll come authentically to Jesus Christ. Why not now, Augustine cries? Why not put an end to my depravity this very hour? Then Augustine heard a voice from what sounded like a child singing repeatedly, take it up and read it, take it up and read it. You may have seen it in the famous Latin phrases, tole lege, tole lege. Pick it up and read. Believing this to be a divine command, Augustine opened the Bible and he read the first passage upon which his eyes chanced. And that passage was Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. It read this, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, things that characterized Augustine's life prior to this moment. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the answer. It was Christ. It was Christ all along. And through Christ, of course, as Paul goes on to say, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, Augustine recalls with these words, wonderful words. I had no wish to read further, nor was there need No sooner had I reached the end of the verse than the light of certainty flooded my heart and all dark shades of doubt fled away. And so we have the conversion of one of the greatest theologians the church has ever known, a man named Augustine, who served eventually as a pastor, a bishop, in a place called Hippo Regius for many years. Well, stories like this Stories like this of people being converted out of disbelief into belief, out of rebellion into submission, out of unrighteousness into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Stories like this abound throughout church history. 
Not always the same way, right? So there's a variety. We talked about this last Lord's Day. So be cautious here. Sometimes when we talk about conversions, it's easy to emphasize that experience more so than the reality. The subjective experience more than what God actually is doing objectively. It may not be that you've had this kind of conversion experience because it may be that you came to faith in Jesus Christ at a very early age. And so anything that I say this morning that sounds like it may discredit the authenticity of your salvation, please, please dismiss that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ today. That's the concern. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ today, you have eternal life, okay? So let's be clear about that. But there are, of course, in this variety, there are these stories that that do indeed highlight this moment through which and on account of which brothers and sisters have been able to recall the life-giving presence of God in the gospel applied by the Spirit of God. Well, in Acts... Chapter 9, we are now face-to-face with what is arguably the greatest conversion story ever told for the church. Um, In some respects, it's unique. In other respects, it's our story if we know Christ. We'll find both of these aspects. And this is the conversion of a man named Saul who would become the apostle what? Paul. The apostle Paul. And he would write many books in the New Testament, depending on how you make a decision on one of those books, you know, you may disagree on the number of those books, but many books of the New Testament and is arguably, arguably the most influential Christian theologian to date since, since of course, the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Here's what we're going to do this morning if you're taking notes. We're going to walk through the conversion of Saul in four stages, okay? We'll call these four observations. You can jot these down if you like. Some of you, you can just follow along as you watch and listen. But here are the four observations. First of all, we are going to observe Saul's life prior to conversion. Saul's life prior to conversion. This is verses one and two. We get a bit about Saul's life prior to coming to know Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. We've already gotten just a little bit in chapter seven and chapter eight. Now Luke comes full circle back to this man named Saul, but he summarizes his previous life prior to Christ in verses one and two. So Saul's life prior to conversion. Second, we will discover the radical nature of Saul's conversion. The radical nature of Saul's Conversion. This really was radical. Um, There are some unique elements of Saul's conversion. And some of you in this this room, if we were to kind of pass the mic around and, and you shared stories of how you came to know Jesus Christ, some of you might have some radical characteristics. Others of you may not. Saul certainly did. And we'll talk a bit about that together. Third, we will look together at the instrument in Saul's conversion. The instrument in Saul's conversion... Jesus Christ appears, let's say it this way, immediately without mediation to Saul on the road to Damascus. It's Christ himself that appears, right? That's radical. That's unique. However, he calls an ordinary man to go minister to Saul as well after this as an instrument in what he is doing, what Christ is doing from heaven by the Spirit in the life of Saul. So we'll talk about that, the instrument 
in Saul's conversion. And finally, after Saul's life prior to conversion, the radical nature of Saul's conversion and the instrument in Saul's conversion, we will unpack the purpose, the purpose for Saul's conversion. The text gives us a purpose. What is that purpose? Why did Christ rescue Saul? And I would submit to you that it's one of the same purposes for which he has rescued you if you know him this morning. Younger worshipers, all right? We've been doing this. We will probably keep doing this. If you are younger in the room and for you to follow along with us, I want you to be in the Bible, okay? So parents, grandparents, um, don't be ashamed to have conversations with your younger worshiper during the sermon about these items, about the sermon, right? I'm going to assume you're talking about the sermon. That's wonderful if you're talking. Um, A couple of things, younger worshipers, I want you to look for. First of all, as we're marching through this text, I want you to be able to answer this question. Whom, whom was Saul persecuting? Jesus answers that question in a question in the text. Whom was Saul really persecuting? Secondly, secondly, I want you to look for this. In the text, what does Saul do immediately after he believes in Christ and is baptized? Luke uses this word immediately. What does he do after that? So he believes and he's baptized. He continues some days and then Luke says, and immediately something. What is he doing at that point? So at the conclusion of the sermon, parents or grandparents, you can ask your younger worshiper these questions. Engage with them in the word of God. We want them in the Bible. Hearing from the God who still speaks, okay? All right, that's all introductory. Let's get right to it by looking together at our first observation, Saul's life prior to conversion. Now, for this, we're looking at verses one and two, so glance down at the text with me if you would. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, I mentioned this a moment ago. We'll say it again. Luke has already, that is the human author of Acts, he's already introduced this man named Saul back in chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. You may recall, if you were with us then a few weeks ago or a month or so ago, you may recall that it was Saul who led in the martyrdom of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Luke tells us that others were were placing their their cloaks, as it were, their garments there before Saul as they were stoning Stephen, indicating that Saul was, was overseeing this martyrdom as a persecutor of the church. And Luke goes on to say in chapter 8 that a great persecution arose and Saul was leading this persecution. And then he moves on and talks about some other things. And now he comes full circle back to this person named Saul. And he informs us that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's still persecuting the church. In fact, he's, he has received official sanction from the high priest. The leader of Judaism has given him official sanction to now go with letters from the high priest and from the chief priests and go to the synagogues in Damascus and show these letters demonstrating that he had authority to arrest anyone who claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. In this text, they're called the way. It's the first time Christians are called the way. They'll be called the way a few other times in the book of Acts. The way. Appropriate, isn't it? Jesus says, of course, I am. 
the way, the truth, and the life. And so one of the titles of early Christians and the early Christian movement was The Way. And so Saul now is traveling about and he's arresting anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now remember, this is still a Jewish movement. This is still largely a Jewish church. This is going to change as we move through the book of Acts. We've already seen how God has begun to graft in the Samaritans, but this is still largely and predominantly a Jewish religious movement. And so these Christians are found where? Often in the synagogues where Jews gathered for worship. And they gathered for worship on Shabbat, on Sabbath, and Christians gathered among them. Because after all, what is the claim of Christianity? That it is the fulfillment of the Jewish promises. This is why early Christians, and we have documents actually where there are conversations between early Christians and Jewish leaders. And in one of those documents, it's a document called Dialogue with Trypho, the early Christian leader actually says the Old Testament really doesn't belong to Judaism, it belongs to Christianity. And I know, of course, if you're not a Christian and you're Jewish, that's quite offensive. But you must understand that essential to the Christian message is that it's not new, but a fulfillment of what was old. A fulfillment of the promises contained in the Old Testament. Known to early Christians simply as the Scriptures. And so these Christians are found among the Jewish people, and Saul is arresting them, and he's persecuting them. Now, I do want you to see something A brief detail in the text, we'll see it again. Luke continues to point out that the church is comprised of both men and women. Do you see that in verse 2? Both men and women are involved in this. And he's already done this a few times. Acts chapter 5 verse 14, Acts 8 verse 3, and Acts 8 verse 12. And so now we're told again, explicitly and overtly, by the way, those were arrested who were a part of the way, men and women. Not just the men, this, this may seem inconsequential to us, but it was significant at the time. It was significant. Um, essential to the early Christian movement, the early church, was the equal status before God on account of the work of Christ that both men and women shared. In other words, some of the social distinctions and the social stratification of Roman society, these, these distinctions were really deconstructed in the presence of God in the church. It was even possible, for example, for a slave to be a pastor leading his master in worship on Lord's Day morning while still submitting to his master throughout the week as a slave. Tremendous what's taking place in the early church. Turns everything on its head. And it doesn't, of course, mean there are no distinctions at all between men and women. Don't get silly with this. That's a topic for another day, I suppose. But it does mean, as the Apostle Paul will write in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, again, he's not arguing that there's no distinction. He's certainly not arguing there's no distinction of roles or no distinction of essence. He's arguing that in the presence of God, men and women who trust in Jesus Christ are co-heirs and worship alongside of one another, as do slaves and free, as do Jews, Samaritans, 
and Gentiles and so forth. Well, in summary, prior to Paul's conversion, uh, yeah, Saul will be Paul. Prior to Saul's conversion, he was utterly opposed to Christ. And he was a central persecutor of the church, okay? That's what's taking place prior to his conversion. Now let's look at the radical nature of his conversion. Glance down with me, if you would, beginning in verse 3. Now as he, that is Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, fill in the blank, me? Right? Younger worshiper, pay close attention to this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then the instruction, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now, like all, like all who know Jesus Christ, Saul was taken from a life of opposition to God and brought into a life of surrender to God. This is, this is our story if we know Christ. And so in this sense, it is, it's radical for all of us, right? And it is supernatural. It's the work of the Spirit of God. Christ intervened in Saul's life, quite literally, on the road and turned Saul around. And he turned Saul around from a life of refusing to embrace the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. And now he would embrace Christ and seek to live a life that brings glory to Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, it's common to us all as Christians. But in another sense, there are some unique facets of this conversion story, at least as it relates to mine. It's a bit different than how I came to know the Lord Jesus. After all, in Saul's case, it is the risen and ascended Christ who appears to him. It's actually Christ who appears in a bright light and drives Saul to the ground. In fact, elsewhere, he'll, he'll retell the story in Acts chapter 22 and again in Acts chapter 26. And there's some variety, but it's essentially the same story. He'll tell later that He wasn't the only one that fell to the ground, but those who were with him also fell to the ground. How could you not? How could you not? In this case, Saul is driven to the ground and he's blinded for three days. Now pay particular attention. Again, I've already highlighted this to what Jesus asks Saul. When all this happens, he doesn't ask, why are you persecuting my people? That's not the question, is it? No, he asks, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Christ and the church are virtually identical in the text. Christ so identifies himself with his people that he's able to say that what you're doing to the church, you're actually doing to me. Do you recall how Christ described the future judgment in Matthew 25? There's this section at the conclusion, the second half of Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus at this great judgment at the end of time will separate what the text calls the sheep and the goats. And the sheep, those who belong to him, 
will be told, look, come, come into my presence. He will welcome them, and he'll do it on the basis of what? He'll say, look, when I was, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was without clothing, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me, so on and so forth. And his people will respond in what way? Lord, when did we see you hungry and, and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you in need of clothing and provide clothing for you? Or when did we actually visit you in prison? And then Jesus, of course, responds and says this, as much as you did this to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, he's using language there to describe the church. The least of these, my what? Brothers. This is important. Certainly, this is a passage that teaches us we ought to serve everyone else. And in so doing, we serve Christ. There's this broader application. But Christ's interest in Matthew 25 actually has more to do with the way in which the believer in Christ serves the body of Christ. Christians. And then he says to those who were described goats, those that do not belong to him, what? I was hungry, you did not feed me. I was thirsty, you did not give me drink. I was in need of clothing, you did not clothe me. I was in prison, you did not visit me. And they will respond, how? When did we see you in these situations? And Jesus will respond, as much as you did not do it for these, you withheld it from me. And so there is... There's this theme throughout Scripture, and in particular in the New Testament, after the coming of Jesus Christ, that teaches us that in serving the body of Christ, we're serving whom? We're serving Christ. To be frank with you, this, this is one of the reasons early on, um, as, as the Lord led me to pursue the office of pastor not long after I'd become a Christian and was being discipled, one of the reasons why I was so taken by this calling is, is I was taken by the Savior of the church. Why would I not be taken by the church? Christ had given his life to purchase the church. And so it was a joy. Still is. Still is, by the way. Most of the time. It was a joy uh, to give my life by God's grace, in service to the people for whom Christ died, the people rescued by the death of Jesus Christ. Now, let's take this a step further. A step further. Jesus' response to Saul when Saul asks the question, who are you, Lord, is what? I am Jesus the one you're persecuting. Now, that may sound familiar to some of you. If it doesn't, let's, let's just point it out. Exodus 3, verse 14, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And as he appeared to Moses, he appeared for the purpose of calling Moses to go to the people of Israel and help rescue them out of Egypt. And Moses says something like this, God, they, you know, they need to know your name. Who are you? They're going to ask me, who is this God? And God said, here's, here's my name. I am. That's my name. Tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am. It's the same phrase. Same phrase here. In the New Testament, in Greek, as in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation. I am. And so the risen and ascended Christ is saying something even more than, hey, by the way, my name is Jesus. 
He's actually claiming to be the great I am. I am Jesus. So, Saul, in opposing the church, you're opposing me. In opposing me, you're opposing God. You see the logic? Saul had thought he was rendering service to God. He tells us this elsewhere. He even describes others as thinking they're doing the same. Saul was convinced as he went to arrest Christians that he was actually serving the God who had revealed himself in Scripture. Jesus appears to Saul and his world turns upside down. Instead of serving me, you've been opposing me, God says. In opposing the church, you oppose Jesus. In opposing Jesus, you oppose God. This revolutionizes Saul. And I don't think it's an accident, by the way, that Saul is blind and doesn't eat and doesn't drink for three days. Why? Christ is calling Saul to participate in his death and his resurrection. Saul must die. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And so he's blinded and he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink for three days. Saul was dying in Christ and he was being raised to new life. This is actually similar to Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, where Saul will later write, Paul will later write to Christians, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He speaks from experience. He died. We quoted recently Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, Accurately, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's precisely what's happening. On the road to Damascus for this man named Saul, Christ calls him to come and to die. Christ brings Saul to the end of himself, in other words. And so I've got a question for you this morning, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this. Have you died in Christ? Have you been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ? Have you come to the end of yourself because of Christ? Oh, oh, sure, it won't be exactly like Saul experienced, I don't think. I doubt it. It will be somewhat unique to you and distinct from Saul's experience, but essentially it will be the same, coming to the end of your own efforts, coming to realize actually Actually, before God, you aren't that good person you've tried to convince yourself you are. That before God, you're broken and you're rebellious against the God who made you. And it's not unique to you. You see, it's actually characteristic of every one of us. Every one of us. We were talking in Membership Matters class this morning about this and and it's really one of the challenges, isn't it? One of the stumbling blocks 
to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, to come to faith in Jesus Christ, you must first recognize your need to be saved. It actually includes coming to the end of yourself and seeing I can't do it. In fact, what I have done is make a mess of things. I have lived in opposition to God, even, even, even out of my own goodness. My goodness is even filthy rags before a holy God. Now, that's bad news unless it's followed by the best news ever spoken. Namely, that while you certainly can't do it, God in Christ has done it for you. And this is precisely the gospel, right? God the Father sent the Son who became human while remaining truly God, who lived the life we should have lived but did not and indeed cannot, who died the death we deserve in our place and for our sins, paying our ransom, who was buried and who was raised on the third day in glorious power, securing our resurrection life and our future resurrection when Christ returns. This is the good news of the gospel so that everyone who surrenders to Christ, who treasures Christ, who trusts in Christ has eternal life. Coming to the end of yourself, really is a way of describing the beginning of Christian faith and the Christian life. So if you'd like to talk more about this, if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, if you have protests and you'd like to share those protests, we would love to have a conversation with you. We would also love to come alongside of you and pray with you if you'll give us that opportunity. After the service, one of the ways you can do this is just by meeting one of our elders. And so after the service, as you walk out of one of these double doors, if you take that left, I mentioned this earlier in the greeting, on the right-hand side out there is the room called Crossroads. Go into that room and have a conversation. No better time than the present, right? You're here. Have the conversation today. Give us the opportunity to just converse with you, perhaps pray with you, and, and maybe even, of course, that the Spirit of God is at work in you in unique ways to call you to faith in Jesus Christ. We might have the privilege of coming alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn to experience what it is to live a life characterized by the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Well, prior to his conversion, Saul lived a life of opposition, as we saw a moment ago. Opposition to Christ and opposition to the church. And he experienced a radical change when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Third, I want you to look with me at the instrument in Saul's conversion. And these last two observations are actually likely to be a bit shorter than the first two. The instrument in Saul's conversion Verse 10, Luke introduces us to a man named Ananias. This is a different Ananias than Acts 5. How do we know that? Well, the Acts 5 Ananias is no longer alive. Okay? I'm not brilliant, but uh, chapter 9 comes after chapter 5. And if Ananias died in chapter 5, this is not the Ananias of chapter 5. And so this is a new Ananias, a different Ananias, and Christ appears to him and instructs him to go and meet Saul, who was blind still. This is during that period of time where he's blind, and he's spending time in prayer. You can imagine, by the way, what he's praying. A lot of confession. Recognizing 
that his entire life was something concerning which he was unaware. And then coming to grips with, he was more aware than he realized. He was suppressing the truth and unrighteousness as he would go on to write in Romans 1. So much is happening in Saul at this moment. And during these three days, as he prayed and fasted, and Ananias' role was simple. He was to go and lay his hands on Saul with some exhortation and explanation. Right? He wasn't just to sneak in, touch him, sneak out, right? That, that wasn't the idea. He was actually to speak. And we don't have it all, doubtless. We're getting summaries here. And he was to go and lay his hands on him, and Saul would be healed, and he would also receive the Holy Spirit, as verse 17 indicates. And understandably, as the story goes, Ananias is hesitant, right? I mean, come on. Saul is well known, okay? He's not friendly to Christians. Are you sure, Lord? There is a friend I have up the road who really loves you, would love to go. I'll be prayer support as he goes. And of course, Christ speaks very clearly with full awareness of what's taking place, calls Ananias to go and to serve as an instrument, okay? Don't miss that, as an instrument in what God was doing by his grace in the life of this fierce persecutor, eventually turned great apostle named Saul. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. And I, I asked this this past week. Why, why did Christ include Ananias? Why, why did Jesus actually choose to include Ananias instead of just simply converting Saul and doing the whole thing, right? Everything from beginning to end without the use of, of an instrument like Ananias. Now, on the one hand, I think a possible answer is Saul was feared. And the church would need some confirmation regarding what was happening here. We'll see that a bit later. Actually, the church in Jerusalem is hesitant to embrace Saul. Others are hesitant. Barnabas is going to be an instrument of God's grace in introducing Saul to the rest of the church. You know, when people say, hey, come over here, I want you to meet Saul. Everybody goes the opposite direction. And that, so this is part of it, I think. What's happening is God is using Ananias to confirm what God is doing through the gospel. And uh, this is going to be an instrument, of course, in the church welcoming Saul. That's part of it, doubtless. But I think there's another reason as to why Jesus included Ananias. Because Ananias, as far as we know, was not a central authority in the church. What else do we know about Ananias after this? Nothing. Nothing. Saul later, Paul, later actually in his testimony communicates that he was a Jew. That's assumed at this point if he's a Christian. We know very little about Ananias. He's here for a moment and then he's gone. He's not an apostle. He is simply an ordinary follower of Christ. As he's revealed in the text... So why is this significant? God is pleased, don't miss this, God is pleased to use ordinary Christians as instruments for the extraordinary. 
God called this trepidatious, timid, understandably so, follower of Jesus Christ to go serve as an instrument in rescuing the greatest apostle possibly ever known. Arguably the most influential Christian theologian in history. And this person came to faith and was baptized, began his Christian life through the ministry of Jesus, yes, but Jesus is operating by means of the ordinary Christian named Ananias. So, dear Christian, be encouraged. You say, I'm not extraordinary. Praise God. He doesn't need extraordinary. That's not what he needs. And so he takes ordinary followers of Jesus Christ who trust him, who will follow him, who will serve him, who at times will walk across the street to their neighbor's house. Who will be willing to jeopardize their popularity for the gospel. Who will refuse to be accepted by the culture by compromising biblical standards. Ordinary people, not the wise, not the debaters of this age. Paul will actually write about this very thing in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. I wonder why. Because it was an ordinary man that God used in Saul's life to rescue him. Dear brother, dear sister, God doesn't need you to be extraordinary. He'll provide extraordinary. In fact, now don't miss this. He doesn't need us at all. Not one bit. God has no necessity that he himself doesn't meet, which by definition is not a necessity. It's nonsense to speak about necessity with God as if it existed outside of him. He has life in himself. He does not need us. And this actually brings us, by the way, to the purpose for Saul's conversion. This is where this is going. And this is where Acts consistently takes us. So our final observation, the purpose for Saul's conversion, look down at verses 15 and 16, where we will begin to land the plane. I won't tell you how long the descent will take. Look down at verses 15 and 16, if you would. Go, the Lord spoke to Ananias. Go, for he, that is Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine. For what purpose? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There were several purposes we could mention regarding Saul's conversion. Several purposes. We could say Saul was converted to Christ to become like Christ. That's Ephesians 2, verse 10. We could say that Saul was converted to Christ to glorify the God who rescues and transforms sinners, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. However, there is a specific purpose mentioned in our text that the Spirit highlights. Saul was converted to Christ to carry the gospel of Christ to others. It's really that simple. You see, God called Ananias to do what? To take the gospel to Saul. 
Even after Christ had appeared to Saul on the way to Damascus, he chose an ordinary Christian to go to Saul, and then that ordinary Christian went to Saul in faithful obedience as an instrument in God's mercy, and then Saul does what? He then goes to take that same gospel message to other people who then, when transformed, will take that same gospel message to other people. And then, of course, the story of the early church. Boy, this is a topic for another day, but I'll mention it. It's kind of like rolling a hand grenade, you know, walking away. And then eventually the early church by the fourth century turns the Roman Empire on its head. How? Simple faithfulness and dependence on the work of God in the gospel of Christ. It's really that simple. A Christian receiving the gospel and taking the gospel A Christian recognizing that what comes to him or her is always intended to pass through him or her to others. That's the purpose for Saul's conversion. He will take this gospel. And then, younger worshipers, I won't forget to mention this to you, and the rest of us need to see this as well. I want you to notice what Saul does immediately after he believes in Christ and is baptized. As verse 20 indicates, and immediately he what? proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. Immediately. He came to know Christ. He began to share Christ with others. Moreover, he will be given the privilege as Christ promises Ananias, and as the story will go on to demonstrate in Acts, he will be given the privilege of suffering For Christ, after all, a servant is not greater than his master. As Jesus said in John 13 and John 15, if they persecuted you, they will persecute me, but you will serve as an instrument for the rescue of the world in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, the same is true for you. As it was true of Ananias, and as it became true of Saul, eventually Paul, one of the central purposes for which God has rescued you is that you might be a chosen instrument for the rescue of others. Again, not because you're extraordinary. Sorry. You're a lot like the rest of us. But because we serve an extraordinary God who rescues chooses graciously to rescue by means of the faithfulness of ordinary people, not because he needs us, but because he's gracious. It's really that simple. Why are we included in this mission of going to the world, of bearing testimony to Christ, of serving as the Apostle Paul again will later write? He wrote so much about so many of these items. I wonder why. This left an indelible impression on him. That the rest of us also, like Paul, will serve as ambassadors for God in Christ, making an appeal to others, be reconciled to God. Why is it that we have that privilege? It's all grace. It's God's goodness. And it's God's bounty to preach Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block to some, foolishness to others, but to those of us who are being saved, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. One author in the 20th century, I know this is recent for me, 
This is recent. From time to time, someone will say, what book are you reading? I say, I'm reading a modern book, and it's from the 20th century. And they'll debate me on this. No, no, this is modern. Uh, Frank Houghton is his name, I believe. Could be mispronouncing his, his last name. He served for a season as the director of the China Inland Mission. And he wrote a hymn, and this hymn was, was taken up and retuned, and, and a chorus was added later, more recently, by the Gettys. There's this part in the hymn that Frank wrote that I think is so very appropriate for us as we close in meditation on how the gospel has come to us in God's mercy so that then we might go to others as instruments in God's grace or for God's grace in the lives of others. Here's what he wrote. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Isn't that rich? Let me read that again. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee own. Then the Gettys have recently added this chorus, and we'll close with this. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what a joy it is to read about this tremendous work of your spirit in the life of Saul, a man who would eventually become Paul the Apostle to us. And yet this is not a testimony about Paul per se. This is a testimony about Christ. And so this morning we are reminded of your work in our lives your work by means of your spirit of rescuing us out of death into life, out of disobedience into submission, out of rebellion into surrender, out of unrighteousness into righteousness, all of which are provided for us by Christ Jesus. Father, my prayer is that you would continue to do what you have been doing for a long time, rescuing lost sinners. And that you would give us the courage to participate and the privilege to participate in this mission of going to the world to declare the same glorious gospel by which we ourselves have been saved. Do this, Father, for your glory, the glory of your Son, and for our eternal good. And all God's people said, amen.